So this scripture comes from Psalm 118, uh, verses 19 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shun upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For steadfast love endures forever. It's the word of the Lord. Today we are in Psalm 118, and, and really the, the thrust of this sermon is verse 24, which is the verse that most of you probably know. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, I'm convinced that that verse, uh, that, that we have not gotten all of the mileage out of that verse that is due to us. And so what we're going to do is just try to delve into that a little bit more today. But I have a, a question for you as we get into it this morning. If your life up until this point were a highlight reel, what would be on it? What would be on it? If, if we had a five-minute highlight reel of your life, what would be the clips of your life that you would put on it? Maybe, uh, maybe it'd be your birth. Maybe your first birthday where you slammed the cake in your face. Uh, maybe your, your first date. Uh, maybe that time you defied all odds and you got to first base on the t-ball team you know what i'm saying maybe it would be the day that you left your parents and you moved to college maybe it'd be your wedding day so on and so forth those are the days that we tend to think are the remarkable days in our lives but unfortunately they're less than one percent of our lives right so my question that we look at today is how do we handle the unremarkable days because the scripture leads us to believe that every day is the day that the Lord has made. And we have reason to rejoice in every day because the Lord has made it and he has made us for himself. So how do we handle the unremarkable days that make up most of our life that somehow, someway, God is forming us into the image of Jesus through his spirit? Those are the days that God tends to be doing the most work in our lives. I was in, uh, I've been in school uh, getting a doctorate of ministry and I've been in Charlotte these last two weeks and this past week we did this really neat exercise and the exercise goes a little something like this we uh, we there was a sheet of paper and it had a square in it and it said draw your family table growing up so what what did it look like for you to have a meal together with your family when you were growing up you know ages 7 through 15 and so you know you're drawing you know you're drawing your your table you're you're, you're making each each person at the table different shapes you're you're drawing solid lines between the individuals that there's healthy communication and you're drawing broken lines for the distorted communication now obviously we have uh, both and around our tables growing up but but really what he was asking is what is your memory of those relationships and then he said you know after you finish all that I want you to color the table with the with the overarching mood that you experienced at that table growing up and for me, man, I just kind of hesitated going into that because this point in my life, there were 
actually three different tables that I ate at because my parents got divorced when I was seven. And so I'm looking at it and I'm not really wanting to get into it uh, because I know that there's brokenness there, there's healing that God has done, but he still wants to do. But the thing that marked me most about our time as we did that as a group of four of us was the question that uh, the instructor asked afterwards. He said, I want each person that's listened to you talk about the, your family table growing up, uh, answer this question, uh, this, or, or answer this statement, the gift you gave to me in your story was blank. So under, under that statement uh, is a truth that we need to grab onto this morning. That every day is a gift in the Lord, and, and, and it is full of purpose and insight and rewarding uh, responsibility that God gives to us through that story. And so what would it look like for us to look at each and every day as a gift? Because Jesus has stepped into the cosmos of eternity and became flesh every day boasts of untold potential. Every single day. So I don't know what you've dealt with walking in this week. Uh, I don't know what you're going to deal with tomorrow morning when you get to work or what kind of phone calls you're going to get this, this week. But what I do know is this, is this is the day the Lord has made and we have reason to rejoice uh, and be glad in it. So the big idea of where we're going today is this. We can rejoice in this day because of what Jesus did on that day. We can rejoice in this day because of what Jesus did on that day. And I'm going to tell you where I'm going, so those of you that are kind of linear folks and like to know where we're going uh, can be in tune with this. I'm going to make two points about this text. First one is this, uh, the day that gives shape to every other day. We're going to look at that. The second one is this, learning to live out of that day every day. So let's dig into it. Uh, Psalm 118, if you've got a Bible, open it up. We're going to be in and out of Psalm 118 pretty much uh, all morning. Um, Psalm 118 is a part of a collection of psalms known as the Egyptian Hallels. The word Hallel means praise. It comes, we, we get the word hallelujah from it. And these Egyptian Hallels are praises to God. And the Israelites would sing and worship over these songs during the feast, the holy feast, the, where they would make a pilgrimage no matter where they live uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate, and particularly uh, over the Passover feast, they would sing these songs, Psalm 113 to 118, uh, over the course of their celebration. The interesting thing about this is that uh, Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover feast. And we get, we get this, this idea of the Lord's table that we celebrate every single week from, from what Jesus does with the Passover meal. And, and uh, there's, this, there's this scripture in Mark 14 that I want to read to us that I think is really interesting because this, this psalm is very near to the heart of Jesus. So let's, let's look at Mark 14, 22 through 26 real quick. Scriptures say this, And as they were eating, he took bread, and, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, that's key, a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What hymn do you think they sung? Psalm 118. Psalm 118. So over the Passover meal, um, 
there would be four cups that they would drink. And, and, and the themes of these cups came out of Exodus 6. So they were, it was the, the cup of sanctification, which says, I'll bring you out of Egypt, because the Passover is all about celebrating a deliverance from an Egyptian bondage, right? So, so the first cup they would drink is the cup of sanctification. The second one, the cup of deliverance. I will deliver you from Egyptian slavery. So it's believed that Jesus drank these two cups with his disciples in the Passover meal. But he does something interesting on the third and fourth cups. The third cup is the, the cup of redemption. And he says, and it's, I'll redeem you with my power. This is when Jesus set, flips the script and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I'm not going to drink this cup because I'm going to become this cup. He steps into the picture. And then he says something really interesting about that fourth cup. He says, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. So that fourth cup is the cup of restoration. Well, everything wouldn't be new until Jesus resurrected. And so what you have is this picture, and it's all surrounded around Psalm 118 of our redemption and hope in Jesus. So on this particular night, what Jesus does is he sees that, that while it's worthy to celebrate deliverance from the Egyptians, that was only a foretaste of the deliverance that we really need in Jesus. What we really need is a deliverance from sin. I mean, I, I have to imagine that Jesus had things like Genesis chapter 6 in mind, where Genesis 6-5 says this, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He noticed, he knows as he's sitting at the table with his disciples that they really need to be redeemed from sin. And Jesus steps into the picture. Even though we didn't ask for it, Jesus came to drink the cup of redemption so that, so that every day could be shot through with meaning. And we could actually say this is the day the Lord has made. And we can rejoice and be glad in it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a really interesting, really interesting verse because it shows us what Jesus actually did when he came to bear our sins. And, and by the way, my hope this morning has been that we would see Jesus. We'd see him more fully than we ever have. So listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Get that. He made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin. Think about it. Jesus had to become the biggest sinner on the face of the earth so that we could be redeemed. That, that's what happened on the cross. He had to become sin so that in him, the verse goes on to say, we might become the righteousness of God. So if Jesus doesn't become sin for us, we can't have the righteousness of God credited to us. This is the, the work that Jesus does. And, and, and specifically today, you know, none of us probably feel as guilty about sin as we should. But, but because of that, we probably don't confess sin that much. But what we miss is the grace, the depth of grace that God wants to give us as we confess our sin. That's what we miss. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to, to set us free. So this is, this is one of the reasons why every week in church, at some point, we're going to be confronted with the fact that we're sinners. And my job, my job each and every Sunday that we gather is not to, to tell you how good you are apart from Jesus, to, to dress you up in the flesh, but it's to point you to the one that can actually redeem you. And we see Jesus doing this at this last supper. 
He redeems us. He pays the price. This week I was sitting under the teaching of uh, Dr. Robert Coleman, who's a huge hero of mine. He is the, the senior distinguished professor, part of this program that I'm, that I'm in. And he wrote this book called The Master Plan of Evangelism that many of you have read. Uh, that is just this remarkable look at what it looks like to, to be and make disciples. And he tells the story about one of his friends. Uh, his name is Dawson Trotman. Now, Dawson Trotman founded uh, a ministry that, is, uh, that has had great impact in the world. It's called The Navigators. He tells a story about when he was, uh, Dr. Coleman was working with Billy Graham, and Dawson Trotman was also working with him. And he tells this story about Dawson. He, he was speaking at this, this camp, uh, and, and this particular afternoon, they went out on uh, the lake, and there were some students in the boat, and there were some adults in the boat, and Dawson was in the boat. And they hit some pretty choppy water. They hit some pretty choppy water as they were going over, and it actually threw Dawson and a, and a, young, uh, a young lady out of the water, out in the water. And the young lady didn't know how to swim. And so the boat is circling around trying to get them, and it's having a hard time getting back to them. And Dawson goes over to the young girl, and, uh, and he is, he's holding her above the water. But you know how it works. When you're holding someone above the water, you're underwater. And Dawson is holding her up, and they come by, and they scoop her up and get her in the boat. When they bring Dawson up in the boat, he's unconscious. And they try to resuscitate him without effect. And Dawson Trotman founder of the Navigators, one of the most remarkable ministries that we've seen in this century, dies that day. And he dies. When Billy Graham preached his funeral, he said this, Dawes, he called him Dawes, died the same way he lived, holding others up. Friends, that is what, Jesus has done more than that for us. He's been holding us above the water all the days of our lives. And his work of grace in us enables us to say this is the day the Lord has made. We can rejoice and be glad in it. We can hold others up with that same faith that God has given us and he's empowered us with. And so as we look at our sin and we see that Jesus has been holding us up, we are invited to see ourselves as we really are. In fact, there is no gain for us in pretending to be someone that we're not. There's not grace, there's not grace for the pretend version of you. There's grace for the real version of you. The one that, that comes before the mirror and says, I'm flawed, God. I'm fatally flawed, and I can't, I can't pretend that I'm getting better about my sin condition. But Jesus, you know that about me. And so I'm going to expose myself before you because you already know me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And Jesus meets us in those moments. So kind of back to the, the Last Supper where they're singing Psalm 118. Jesus, they leave the, the upper room with his disciples. They make their way past the temple uh, on the east gate of Jerusalem. And they go, they go past the temple. Now, this is the Passover feast. What's happening at the Passover feast? They're slaying tons and tons of animals. There is blood everywhere. They have to go through the Kidron Valley, which was known as the, the Black Valley because of all of the blood stain on it. So I've got to imagine that Jesus and his disciples are kind of hiking up their robes as they walk through it, probably getting a little blood stain on their feet as they walk over to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the other side of the Kidron Valley. And that is the place where Jesus says what? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is still in Passover mode as he's talking about that fourth cup. And they've just sang this song. 
here's what I want you to know as we delve more deeply into Psalm 118 now, is that your day will never give you joy in and of itself. No matter how great it is, it will never be able to produce what you actually need, which is unending, ever-satisfying joy. But when we come to Jesus and he begins to shape every day that we have because of the hope that we have in him and the power of the resurrection that dwells inside of us, it shapes every day that we live. And every day has meaning, every day has purpose, and every day has a gift for us to experience. So let's keep going in Psalm 118 here. We're going we're gonna to be looking at learning to live out of that day that Jesus gives us. So what I want to do now is I want to go through Psalm 118, 19 through 29. I want to look at just specifically how this points to Jesus. I mean, it makes me tear up as I read the fact that Jesus and his disciples were singing this on the way to Calvary. And it's all about him. Psalm 118, I'll kind of I'll story tell it as we go through it. It says this, starting in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. It paints this picture of the Israelites coming to the gates of Jerusalem, ready to celebrate in the presence of the Lord. They're saying, open the gates of the city so we can come in and experience God's presence. Because the Israelites at this time uh, knew that God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. They were eager to get in the presence of the Lord. So they, they're at the, the entrance to the gates of the city, and they say, open up the gates to me that I may enter through them. And they go on to sing, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. But listen to how they talk about their righteousness. How do they get righteousness? They go on to sing this, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. You've become the key to get me into the city, Jesus. You've become the key, Lord. You have become my salvation. And then it goes on to talk about this prophecy about Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Cornerstone is the most important stone in setting up the foundation of a building. Because Jesus, as we, as we read in Isaiah chapter 53, was really unwanted. He had nothing that we should look upon him. He, he, wasn't, he didn't have this beautiful sight. He didn't look like a king that would save people. He was unwanted. So he's rejected by his own people. He's become the cornerstone. And the scriptures go on to say in Psalm 118, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. They're singing, looking forward to this. Uh, the Israelites are. That is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, and let us rejoice and be glad in it. So this, this isn't a trite saying to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get through your day. This is talking about an actual day. That this day that the Lord has made will, will empower us to have joy no matter what we experience in the future. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord, the psalmist goes on to say. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And listen to this. He has made his light to shine upon us. He has shown his light upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is a big deal is what he's saying. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. And Psalm 118 ends with the same phrase. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. 
It is unchanging. It is an unending love. So it is not dependent upon how well you and I behave. It doesn't, he doesn't change even though we do. So when he holds us with his grace, we are secure. We are completely secure in his presence. About 500 years after this psalm was written, the temple would be torn down. Jerusalem uh, would be ransacked. <clears throat> and and that, that presence that they longed for would be nearly impossible to found, find because they were in exile. And, and earlier, um, earlier in the year, we, looked, we walked through, uh, actually last year, we walked through the book of Nehemiah. And we talked about this exile and how God brought his people back into his presence, into his city, and all of that image. Well, kind of in tandem with Nehemiah is, is Ezra. And Ezra writes about the rebuilding of the city of God too. Uh, and, and after this is torn down, the, the Israelites are eager to get in the presence of the Lord. They're eager to be with him. I mean, imagine, you, you don't yet have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know where the presence of God lives and dwells, and you are utterly devastated when you're exiled. You feel all alone, even though God is still with you. There's a consequence of their sin. And, and Ezra picks up on the rebuilding of the temple, the presence of God. And, and, and he says this in, in, in Ezra chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. I want to read this quickly. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. This is the, the, the rebuilding of the foundation of the temple. So all of Israel is around and they're watching. And they're seeing... Finally, God's presence is going to be back with us in our midst. We're going to be restored to Jerusalem in the land. We're going to be here in His presence. And they, they're singing the same thing that we've been singing in Psalm 118. For He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's the anthem of their heart. And listen to this. And all, all the people shouted with great joy. And when they had praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, they were hopeful of what would come. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses and old men who had seen the first house, they'd seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. That's crazy to me. Why would you weep whenever the temple's being rebuilt? Why would you weep? Let's hold that thought and finish, finish the verse here. Though many also shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish, distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So here's what you've got. The people of Israel are coming back in. The temples, they, they've got the land back. The temple's being built. They, they see the promise coming to fulfillment that God's presence will once again be with them. But you've got this mixed review of this. You've got these older folks that 70 years before this, they saw the first temple. They saw, they saw Solomon's temple. They, they, they saw it and they, they thought, there's no way that this can be as good as what I experienced in the past. And you've got these other folks that, that have been in exile their whole life and they're thinking, man, this has to be better than what I've been experiencing in exile. And you and I are tempted to see the days of our lives in the same way. We're tempted to say, there's no way that what I experience in the future can be as good as what I've experienced of God in the past. You see what I'm saying? We're tempted to jump in that ditch. We're tempted to, to be fueled by past religious experiences. And God says, this is the day that the Lord has made. This day is where God wants to meet you. 
And there's other, others of us that, that hope for something in the future that's really good. We all hope for that in Christ. But sometimes we do it at the expense of seeing the presence of God with us today. And both are true. Both are true. Jesus is coming to restore all things, but he's also redeemed us in restoring things today. So what is it in your life right now that you are tempted to think God is not working in? This, this, what I'm experiencing right now cannot be a gift of God. Because that, my friends, will really be the idol of your heart that keeps you from entering fully into the presence that God, his presence that he has for you. And the gifts that he has for you. What is paralyzing your joy right now? What is crippling your joy? Because the scriptures say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we say it because of the work that Jesus has done and, and the resurrection that we have experienced. It's, it seeks to threaten our lives every day. And, and when I think about this verse, I think about kind of two approaches to us experiencing the joy of the Lord. One I'll call uh, the rose-colored glasses approach. Um, you've heard the phrase like, you know, you've heard the phrase of rose-colored glasses. It's, it's basically this expression that means that you look at, at, at life uh, through a very optimistic perspective. Now, uh, sometimes I think we, we think that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118.24. Sometimes we think that that's, a, that's really rose-colored glasses of life. But I don't think that's the gospel. I don't think that's what God has for us. God is not just saying, hey, just only look at the good side of things. You know, stuff all of the pain that you're experiencing down and just look at the bright side of things. I don't see the psalmist doing that. I see them laying prostrate before the Lord, begging him for his presence and begging him to change their circumstances. Are you, are you a person that tends to look at life that way and you, you think that if I can just look at life optimistically then everything will be better. Because there is a deep part of your life and pain that you've experienced that is unknown to God. If we keep that from Him and, and say, you know, I, I can just kind of muscle through this. I can make it happen. I think that what Jesus is calling us to is something a little deeper than this. Maybe we could call it the Viewmaster approach. How many of you guys have uh, uh, had a Viewmaster growing up? One of these. Anybody? Anybody have one of these or your grandkids did or whatever? Yeah. So the Viewmaster is great, right? It's awesome. If you're unfamiliar with the Viewmaster, it is this, uh, you know, lovely uh, piece of equipment here that has these different reels. Now, on each one of these reels is a, is a, is a, is a kind of a cassette of scenes. And the Viewmaster is, is awesome, uh, but it's only awesome if you look at it through light, right? If you look at the, the Viewmaster and you're in a dark room, You'll think this is a piece of garbage. You'll chuck it. But if you look at it into the light, it's amazing. It's amazing what you see through the viewmaster. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 118? He says this. He says, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. That's why we can say this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because he's made his light to shine upon us. His light has exposed our sin. But it's also shown us redemption. It's shown us that the cornerstone that they rejected, as, uh, that, the, that the building block the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's shown us to seek and to savor Jesus because he's the only hope that any of us have. So how do you look at life? Do you look at it through this kind of 
really weak gospel approach of, oh, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. So maybe you say that, I'm not making fun of you, but I think God has something deeper for us. God has something deeper for us, and it's the fact that he has made his light to shine upon us. And no darkness can ever take it away. No darkness can ever take it away. I want to close with a story. Oscar Coleman uh, is a French uh, theologian that lived in the 1900s, like 1905 to 1999 or something like that. And, and uh, he, speaks, he speaks about our hope in God by, looking, by comparing it to two days. And, you know, this guy lived in France during World War, World War II. So we can expect some, you know, he's got insight, right? Um, he, he says that our hope in God, you know, really speaking about how do we look at this day in light of that day, he speaks about it like this. He says, on, on, on D-Day, Allied troops entered France. And, and in principle, what he says about D-Day is that the war, war would be only, over only in a matter of time. It had a shelf life. The, when, when the invasion of the troops on the beaches of Normandy happened on D-Day, the war would be over in a matter of time, in a matter of months. Everyone knew it. There was this hope that filled the air because light had broken into the darkness. It's the same way that Jesus has stepped down into eternity and become flesh, and he's dwelt among us. And he's, he's not only died on the cross, but he's resurrected to give us the hope of the resurrection. He says that, that when, 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 that, when that happened with D-Day, even though it would take many months of bitter fighting before the Nazis surrendered, V-Day was at hand. Church, we live in light of, we live in between the days of D-Day and V-Day as God's people. We know, we know that Christ has conquered and he is reigning, but the influence of sin is still around us. But V-Day is coming when Jesus will return. And he'll come as the king that we need. He'll come as the conquering king. But until then, we live in between those days with hope as God's people because he has conquered the grave. And we can say, as God's people, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we come to you this morning and... Uh, we are eager to experience more of your presence with us. And Lord, we, we know that we are tempted to look backwards and forwards for our hope. But you say this is the day that your spirit applies the work of Christ to our hearts today, no matter what we're going through. And so God, I pray for my friends in this room that you would, you would give them a hope uh, that is unwavering, a light that is unfading as they tackle what life brings to them this week. That is a providence of your work, of your hand. You are so eager to shape us into the image of Jesus. But you use it all. You don't waste anything. So God, I pray that you comfort my friends that need to be comforted today. I pray that you would redirect my friends that are maybe living in light of the wrong day. And you would set our feet on the solid rock of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.